I grew up in a house where I had a very supportive mother who told me I was good looking, intelligent and smart. And I could be anything I wanted to be as long as it was a lawyer. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Matt Ferret, author of Prepare for Medicare and Prepare for Social Security Insiders Guidebooks and Online Course Training Series. Welcome to another episode of The Matt Ferret Show, where I interview insiders and experts to help light a path to successful living in midlife, retirement, and beyond. Joe, welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here, Matt. Good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing really well. Thanks. Good. good. Tell everybody what you do, how long you've been doing it, and how you help people. Well, um, I am an author. I'm a speaker. I am a corporate advisor. They're well, that's kind of how I sum up why I'm here. Um, what I do is a lot of things. <laughs> and uh, my goal is to help people become better by experiencing more things. And what I mean by that is get into more lanes, do more things, and just stop being in a rut. That's my goal is to keep that from happening for people. Okay. Talk about that. I like you said the word lanes. Um, yeah. t- talk to me about those. All right. And this is where we can explore why I do this. All right. I already said I'm a speaker and author and a strategic advisor. I retired five years ago as a criminal defense lawyer. I shouldn't say retired. I walked out of my law firm and decided I was bored five years ago. Stopped practicing law. Became a political advisor. I'm also a private investigator. And throughout my entire legal career, I owned a restaurant. I was a, uh, well, I was a private investigator at that point already. Um, I'm a woodworker. I'm an artist. I'm a professional entertainer and a professional mind reader. Um, So I have multiple lanes that I live in. And what I have discovered is the more lanes you live in, if you learn how to cross them over and find out where they intersect, your life changes drastically. And I don't care how old you are. I don't care where in life you are. The change can happen for anybody. Okay. This is, this is fascinating. So let me, let me just, let me background it in, in general terms. You you graduate high school, you go to college, you get your law degree somewhere in there. You you end up being a criminal defense attorney, which is normally one of these jobs you think of as, as people, people think, right? Law, high paying, or at least potential of high paying 80 hours a week, billable hours, going crazy, going nuts and pretty much all in, right? You've got your, got your JD and that's a, that's a one track way to hopefully, right? A a nice income um, and a nice career, respectable career, a respected career. Um, and that's kind of normally it. I mean, maybe some woodworking on the side as a hobby, but it sounds like what you did was that wasn't enough or you've got a, you got a workaholic problem or you wanted to, I mean, so how did you go from, you know what? I got this crazy, big, huge job and it's not enough or I want more out of life. How does that brain, how does that work? It's about experience. I needed more experiences than what law, meaning let's be honest, criminal defense for, first of all, let me explain. First 13 years of my career, I was a prosecutor. I worked in the government. Then I opened my own law firm and ran that for 20 plus years. And I had a team of people working with me. I was loving what I was doing. But for me, it wasn't enough. I needed more of an experience. I needed something more to do. So I made a decision. Just do what I want to do. 
and keep yourself busy. I mean, even when I worked in government as a prosecutor, and I, I love laughing about this, in 1992, and now see, this is embarrassing when I admit to this every time I admit to it. In 1992, I was a prosecutor working in the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office, and I made more money that year as the private party clown at Hershey Park. <laughs> and that reflects on your life and goes, wait a minute, this is too much fun. So I kept finding things to do that were fun to make my life go over the edge. And as my daughters, every time I get a new hobby, my daughters have a running pool as to how many months or years it's going to take before that becomes a business also. Okay. <laughs> so, so you, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm off. It's pretty <laughs> funny. I yeah, mean, I, not it, only do you, yeah, you said it's funny, but be, probably because you've repeated it more, more than once. That's yes. hilarious. So you're a pro, you're assistant prosecutor. So by day, by day, you're 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 sitting there making arguments and doing uh, casework, and and uh, by night you're in the you're in the law library. But on the weekends, you're a clown at a, an amusement park. I was a clown at Hershey Park. That's what I was doing. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I, yeah, it, it, in fact, it was actually funny because I wanted to find some steady work near home as a side gig, and the story is. I went in the Hershey Park. They told me they couldn't use me because they were under contract with another agency. And being a good lawyer, I looked at what they had and I said, no, there's a loophole. You can make money if you bring me in. And I showed them a business model. They brought me in and ended up paying me very good money for about a year and a half to two years until they found a model where they could get somebody in a lot cheaper than me. So way back in the '90s, you decided to go do the side hustle thing before side hustle was a was oh. a phrase, and that was based upon, if I'm hearing it right, you're unsatisfied at work, or you just have so many interests you wanted to try a bunch of stuff out because of the word you used was experience. I use the word professional ADD. I always wanted to try to figure out what my career was. Once I started getting it going, I had to find something else to do. And when you say side hustle, um, it's kind of funny because I was actually going at one point, my preparation was to quit working for the government and become a full-time entertainer. And as I tell people, you learn a valuable lesson when you come home, you have a great plan and your wife says three words that changes the course of history. She just looked at me and said, I am pregnant. And I went, okay, no longer a new career side hustle. So take me from there. Take me from there. What happened then? What did you do? Buckle back down at work and uh, uh, put this, shelve this? Well, let me say this. I No, no. Um, I also, by the way, before I became a lawyer, was a civil engineer. So I've always been unusual. Uh, when all my friends in law school were working as a law clerk and trying to get ready for their careers. I was walking high steel in Philadelphia, putting up girders and beams because I found out I could make more money doing that. Um, so I have always been driven by, well, what can I do today to make more than I was making? And as I went through and worked in government, uh, 
let's put it this way. I mean, yeah, I worked long hours, but I also knew that I could do fun things on the side. And all through law school, I was a children's birthday party magician. Um, and that's pretty much how I paid for law school. So I made the decision, I'm going to do that on the side. And I started doing kids' parties. Um, I was having fun. I'm doing kids' parties. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, Hershey Park is three miles from my house. Why am I driving all over creation? I got to roll into the park. So I came up with a way to make money there. Um, okay. That Before continued. We- how did this happen? Was this upbringing? Is this, is this, uh, what do they say? Is it, uh, it's, uh, genes or, or was this part of your, like, did you get inspired? How did this happen? Tell me, tell me how you grew up to be this way where you just started going, Ooh, look, opportunity fun. Ooh, look, opportunity fun. You have the corporate or the professional careers, but you kept doing how did this come from your parents? Did you read a book? How did this happen? See, this is what I like about your show, Matt. Your audience is going to understand a little more of what I'm about to say than most some of the interviews I do, because some of the young people don't follow me on this. Okay. Let me start with my grandfather. My grandfather was a trained architect. He was also the deputy director of public property for the city of Philadelphia. And at night, He was a pioneer of sports radio. He was the voice of WDAS radio in Philadelphia. And he was a stadium announcer at Shy Park for the Philadelphia Athletics. He was a race car announcer. So I got to grow up sitting on the laps of Mario Andretti and A.J. Foyt while he interviewed them post-race. And then he also would do wrestling, boxing, and other events and was an an in-demand speaker. So being that he was an architect, he worked in the government, and he had all this side thing going as the radio, Sherry O'Brien was his stage name, everybody knew him, I admired him. And no matter what I talked to him about, he could talk back to me. So he had a lot of experience. At the same time as a kid, and some of, the, some of your audience will remember, Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney. It was a ventriloquist and his ventriloquism doll. And they had the Winchell Mahoney show. Uh, They also were on a lot of talk shows and radio shows. And I jokingly say I wanted to be a ventriloquist, but found out I could not keep my mouth still because I talked too much. So I, my parents gave me a ventriloquism dummy that didn't work out, but I stayed fascinated. Paul Winchell who I thought was one of the greatest entertainers ever, had gone to pre-med, could not finish medical school because his family didn't have money. He becomes this famous guy, makes money doing his show. He's doing really well, making all of his appearances, and he got bored. And then started inventing. He has a patent on a disposable, had 30 patents in his lifetime. One was on a disposable razor. Oh, gee, we see those every day. We do. Um, One was on a a flameless cigarette lighter, which is pretty much what we used to have in our cars back in the day. And then my favorite was he he decided to become more involved in the medical career, hooked up with his friend, Dr. Heimlich. Heimlich was, we all know, the guy that invented the Heimlich maneuver. 
So here's this guy who was a ventriloquist at top of his career, making great money, went, I got to do something else. And he hooks up with Dr. Heimlich and they invented and patented the first artificial heart. And their patent was given to the University of Utah. And that was later what created the Jarvik 7 fake heart. So between my grandfather and Winchell as two of my role models, I think from a young age, I was determined that I would always want more out of life. So and the whole nature versus nurture argument, you definitely had a lot of nurture back there that you could model. Yes. And, and I was drawn to people like that. Um, I, I always say George Plimpton. Some of the uh, boomers will remember George, okay? Uh, George Plimpton was a immersive uh, a journalist who was on television all the time because, no, he didn't just write about being a quarterback for a football team. He actually wrote a book called The Paper Lion where he went in and became a football player for the Detroit Lions just to see what it felt like. He also did a boxing match to see what it felt like. And he would do these shows from time to time when I was younger where George Plimpton would just do something different all the time. And that kind of stuff fascinated me. That's uh, that's pretty awesome. When, when you were doing this, or when, I mean, I guess you've been doing it since you were knee high, but let's just say when you were doing this as a professional, right, in your quote unquote career, people, again, I'm going to speak generically, people go career, right? And you focus and you work really, really, really hard and you save your pennies and throw it in a retirement account and then retire at age 55, 65, 70 with a gold watch and sail off into retirement. What did people what did people say to you? Uh, I can't imagine everybody was positive about going, hey, you know, by day you're you're helping put people away for, uh, you know, criminal offenses. And I guess later on, helping to keep them out of criminal offenses. And then I, I might run into you at uh, uh, at a party or at a at a uh, at an amusement park later and, and uh, see you juggling stuff. What did what did what did naysayers think? Did you have people support oh. you or did you have people just like make fun of you? Oh, no, I, I think uh, my, my naysayers started when I was younger because um, I grew up in a house where I had a very supportive mother who told me I was good looking, intelligent and smart. And I could be anything I wanted to be as long as it was a lawyer. <laughs> for, the minute, for the minute I chose a different path. Um, and and it, I laughed when you said any naysayers, because in high school, I met with a guidance counselor and said, I want to get a degree in engineering. And then I want to go to law school. And they actually called my parents to talk me off the ledge. Because they're like, why would you can't go to engineering and then go to law school? It doesn't fit. And I went, yeah, it does for me. Um, because at that point in my life, I knew that what I wanted was right brain, left brain. I needed to educate myself more globally because that's just how I'm driven. Now, when you talk about people seeing me, um, yeah, when you're in certain careers and I, I, I always tell the story on stage, you know, fear is something you just have to overcome in life and say to yourself, I'm going to go through this. Well, I walk structural steel, six inch beams, 40 stories in the air. And everybody says, were you scared? At first I was, and then I learned how to do it. But then at night I got a job in a department store and I was working in the cosmetics counter at night 
Now, you want to know what fear is? Fear is you're going to be selling lipstick to a woman and one of the iron workers is going to come in and catch you at a cosmetics counter. That's fear, baby. It had <laughs> nothing to do with falling. So I, I lived in this world where I juggled between everything. But here's where the magic happened. And in, in all fairness, I had a lot of clients that met me either working, doing shows as a performer, or they met me um, when I had my restaurant for a little while, um, or they met me doing a number of things. But what made me a, a, a great trial lawyer, and I, I don't mean to sound arrogant or egotistical. I have a nice plaque on my wall that the last week my firm was open, I got a plaque that declared me one of the top 10 criminal defense lawyers in Pennsylvania, and I went, I'm out on top. But why was I good? Why? Because I lived and breathed the public. I was on stage. I was on the floor of a restaurant. When I talked to a jury, I didn't care whether it was a, an accountant. I didn't care if it was an engineer, a plumber, a, a, an auto mechanic. It didn't matter. I lived and breathed with these people because I didn't want to be an ivory tower lawyer. So when people would hire me, they knew my presentation skills were top-notch. I mean, I, I, oddly enough, I'm one of the only lawyers you'll ever meet who had an acting coach on retainer. Um, I wanted to know how to perform. I mean, that's what it was about. So that's when I first started to realize how my worlds collided and everything worked together. You said professional ADD. Yeah. Um, how did you come up with that phrase? I mean, I get it. I get it conceptually. But how did you come up with that phrase? Did somebody say something at some point or were they looking at you in amazement going, what's going on here? No, I think I just made that up one day just because it existed, um, because I knew that I always go in multiple directions. And um, maybe it's because subconsciously people think, oh, you have ADD, you have to control that. But as soon as they think it's a profession, they don't think you have to control it anymore. You know, I'm able to certify them now. I, you know, <laughs> I, it's just, it's, I, look, I live my life. Um, my wife um, is very, I want to say, my wife is very supportive, but she's also very well known for saying a phrase of, yes, I'm a judge, but my full-time job is keeping up with Joe. And she just laughs because I've always got something going. You said you mentioned failure a couple minutes ago, oh, and, then, yeah. and then earlier on in the show, um, talk about that. Um, I have to imagine fear of failure, or actually doing something on the side or different, and failing has got to put a, a stop to a lot of people. Um, can you talk oh. about failure and how to approach that? Because it's a fascinating topic for me sure. personally as well. Yeah, you know, failure is what I believe. Failure limits everything we do. The minute you start to fear something, you're going to fail if that's what you think you're going to do. Um, I, when I first, okay, so I'm in law school and I'm working for an engineering firm. I call my boss and I said, I need it work. And Don said, I don't have any work for you. The only thing we have this year is high steel and you're scared of heights. Without even missing a breath, I said, but Don, I am more scared of poverty. And he said, so you want to climb high steel? Yes. And I took the job and I started doing it. Because for me, 
I made a decision of the least of two evils. I would rather fall than be poor. And I made that decision. That is a tough decision to make. It really does. Because of, That's literally a life and death decision. It, well, exactly. But I use that as a metaphor for everything I've done through my life because here's what I did. And I, I, I will tell you, I do this in everything. So this is not just me saying this is what I did when I was in my 20s. I did this when I opened a restaurant. Uh, I did it when I started my consulting business. Here's what I do. I know that if I fall, I will die. And I think of that metaphor every day. In fact, I'm laughing because I keep with me on my desk everywhere I go, one of the bolts from the steel that I worked on. And that is what drives me because I see that and it reminds me of that fear. So what did I do? You don't just jump on a six-inch beam 200 feet above the Chesapeake Bay and think you're going to die. No, I showed up. I watched people do it. I found someone who looked incredibly comfortable. I mean, the one guy that could walk a beam, smoke a cigarette, and tell jokes, and I went, I like him. And I remember looking at him and I said, what can you teach me? first found a mentor. He worked with me and got me the understanding of how to do it. So once I reprioritized and said, I'd rather be dead than poor, I knew I was going to do the job. I committed to it. I got a mentor and he walked me through it. I wasn't afraid to ask for help. And then the third thing was you just have to consciously pay attention because if you're not paying attention, you're going to fall. So with every task or everything I've done, even when I wanted to open a restaurant, um, as my daughters always say that every time daddy has an idea, it becomes a business. <laughs> well, in 1999, 2000, in that range, I walked into a friend's pizza parlor and said, Frank, can I cook for you? And he looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, I want to learn how to cook. I love your food. Well, every Friday night for six years, I would leave my law office, I would go to the restaurant, and I would start cooking at about five o'clock at night, and he would tell me what to do. I'd be in the kitchen, I'd be prepping, I'd do whatever he said to do. My family would roll in later in the evening, we'd all have dinner, and then I'd go home at the end of the night. Six years later, Frank and I opened a restaurant together. Would I have opened a restaurant ahead of time? No, because I didn't really understand it. I got Frank to be my mentor and teach me. Once I knew I could work with him and I understood the concept, then we opened the restaurant. And it was, I found someone to guide me and that's what I do. I mean, you can go out and learn everything you want to learn on YouTube, Instagram and all that stuff. Um, in fact, I was joking last night because I saw an Instagram post that said, hey, save yourself time boil water on Sunday and put it in the freezer. So you have boiled water all week. <laughs> now you gotta love that. But I mean, so I'm not sure I believe all the Instagram stuff. But my point is I have gone out and I learned things, but you got to find somebody and you got to commit to a course of action. Yeah. That's a big difference. I'm glad you said those three things. You, you, you have an idea, you think you might want to do it, but you do a trial run. It seems yeah. like, yeah. and you learn it before you commit to it. That's a lot different than jumping into, you know what I want to do? I'm going to open up a restaurant. You took no. six years of learning 
before you actually took the quote unquote risk to go do this. That That's a very big difference than I think what most people think of, you know, I'm a professional X and I want to go, you know, open up a uh, dog grooming service. I'm just going to start it or well, I'll buy a franchise and start from, from zero. You, exactly. you took a ton of time to go learn it by yourself before you made that decision. That's a, that's a key difference. It is. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, I've had this argument with people in the past where I say, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm a businessman. And the answer is what's the difference is when I've done something as an entrepreneur, I dove in. When I do it as a businessman, I actually make a plan study and I case the joint before I go in. That's to me, I had to know that I could do it. And by the way, I always tell the story that um, I ran the floor of the restaurant. Um, I was the, the maitre d', if you will. Everybody knew my face on the restaurant and I'm the one that kept everybody happy. Um, so all those years of cooking didn't affect me. Uh, we had a chef, Santo, except for one night about eight, nine months in when Frank and Santo, the owner and sous chef and the chef had a fight and one went out the one door and one went out the other. And the waitress looked at me and said, who's going to cook? <laughs> and I jumped into the kitchen and the guests, the people in the restaurant never noticed a difference. So the fact that I was willing to learn that I didn't know it was going to happen, but if I didn't, the restaurant could have failed in one night. But it that's sound, the thing. Yeah, it sounds like you mentioned it in passing, but I picked up on it. You, you've had your wife involved in this, you know, mindset. It, your kids, you said, bring the family into the restaurant. You're including your loved ones or your family and oh. probably your friends in this as well. This isn't just a, you know, a, a thing you do that dad's gone. Uh, you know, a Friday nights. Tell me how important that is to bring, bring family or bring, bring friends along for this ride. Um, my, my law firm motto was family first period. Um, by the way, my daughters were also bus girls in the restaurant. Um, they were all, they also worked in my law firm. Um, in fact, I, when I opened my, uh, very first law office in 1997, um, my youngest daughter was only two and a half and I still remember her to this day. We didn't have phones to take pictures, so we just remember it. Um, she was on her knees crawling around the room with a tissue cleaning the floor molding, um, because I brought my family in and the rule I had in the firm with all my staff was if something was happening in their family, they didn't even have to tell me. They just told me, Hey, it's a family matter. Take off. We got you covered. Um, I believe family is everything. Um, and I believe they should be a part of everything. And, uh, that's why I do what I do. Tell me about a time you failed. Oh God, failed. Um, you know, the biggest failure I ever had was, uh, probably when I decided I wanted to work heavy equipment and I uh, jumped on a Caterpillar telehandler, which is a machine that has uh, tires about the size up to my eyeballs. And uh, I forgot to get a mentor. Um, I forgot to talk to someone before I did it. I thought, wow, it looks like a giant dune buggy with a big arm. Um, <laughs> uh, I got on it. I started moving stuff around my property during the construction of my house knocking down trees. And then all of a sudden I hit a mud pile 
And next thing I knew, everything was spinning and I ended up outside the machine. The machine was upside down in the mud and um, a several ton Caterpillar telehandler handler almost fell on me. And uh, I came into my house. I called the owner of the equipment to tell him that, oh, I'll take care of it. I'll fix it. And as I'm talking to him, I looked at my reflection in a window and realized I was covered in blood. And uh, thank God my wife walked in. They got me to the hospital. Um, but yeah, it was not the smartest move in my life, but I call it one of my biggest failures. So now my wife says the rule is I don't handle heavy equipment. And my rule is I don't touch anything until I learn from someone else because there's some things that are just not intuitive. And by the way, in case you're interested, cleaning the engine in an oil and lube on an inverted telehandler is about $8,000 back then. Um, and it's not covered by insurance because it was a stupid act of the owner. So you do have some lessons learned with the failure oh, piece. Yeah. Uh, e extrapolate that into what somebody may be thinking right now, which is, you know, I've always wanted to blank, but I've been afraid to try because of whatever reason, right? It, it will cost me, it could cost me money. It could bankrupt me. Um, it's going to embarrass me. I mean, when you said you're running like a, a clown or a whatever, I mean, as an attorney, I mean, how that's that's its own fear of professional, personal embarrassment, isn't it? And especially the word embarrassment when you fail, no one likes to fail. And when you do and it's public, that I think that's got to probably hit a lot of people. The majority of the people out there listening or watching have to have had these thoughts and feelings before. But you haven't, or you have, and you plow well, through them. I, yeah, I challenge myself very frequently. Um, first of all, I have done so many things in my life to embarrass myself. And anyone that thinks that they're not going to embarrass themselves is foolish. No matter what you do, someone is going to take exception with it. No matter what you do, someone's going to think something different. You can't control other people's thoughts. Just make yourself happy. You do what makes you happy and you have to just learn to ignore them. Now, there is a curve in life where I understand when you're younger and you're building a career. But here's the thing. I am 63 years old and I've only just begun. I am going to embarrass myself more in the next 30 years than anyone can imagine. And I'm excited about it because I realize at my age, it doesn't matter what other people think. I don't really care. And I think that so many people limit themselves. And that is where um, they screw up. Just be happy and don't be afraid of failing. Look, if you do it right and you have a plan, um, I have a friend of mine who's a professional gambler and I said to him, I can't gamble. It's not something I do. And he said to me, oh no, have fun with it. And I said, how do you have fun with it? He said, you never gamble more in a day than you make in a day. And I laugh because I sometimes have thought about that as a business model for me going, all right, if I'm going to do this, how much am I going to lose 
How much can I make back? Where, what, what can I do to test the waters? Um, so you just do it. And the older we get, look, I, I've done what I can for my kids. They're on their own. They're, they're in their thirties and it's up to them now. If I blow everything and I'm living in a car, well, I'll figure it out. I'll start over again. But the whole point for me is you got to take a little bit of risk at some point. Uh, when you were talking a few moments ago, you, you were talking about the concept of people saying, get a career, put your head down and do the career. I always laugh because I had multiple businesses, but that was what they call today work-life balance. I did a lot of things because it's what made me happy. Um, I didn't need to have a lot of free time to sit in a Starbucks. I didn't need to have a lot of free time to go out and hang out with my friends. No. What did I do? I created free time where, oh, wait a minute. I'm going to work on my magic show. I'm going to go hang out with my magic friends. I'm going to work on woodworking. I went and hung out with my friends that did woodworking. My social life, my entire being became who are these people and how do I achieve balance and how do I feel like I'm going to wake up tomorrow better than I was today? I'm going to find new things. Um, one of my mentors, um, a man named Charlie Tremendous Jones, who was an incredible motivational speaker. If you have a middle name called, uh, you know, in, in quotes, Tremendous, yep. I got to hear about this guy. Go. Well, Charlie Tremendous Jones was a motivational speaker back in the day, um, very close to a lot of the Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. He introduced me to Peale's wife and he knew all the big guys on the circuit. But Charlie had a line he would always use and said, you will be the same person today as you are in five years, except for two things, the people you meet and the books you read. And I, it's funny because all the years I knew Charlie, he was my best friend and I had no desire to be a speaker. But I heard him say that so many times. And I think that's one of the things that drug me to him because I knew that the more people I met and the more books I read, the smarter I would become and the more challenged I would be by life. And I define challenge as a happy place. Um, you know, uh, if I, if there's something out there, I'm going to learn to do it. Um, I'm laughing as I smile because we're talking to your audience. Look, people, we're getting older. And I know years ago, they used to always say, oh, keep your mind active, do crossword puzzles, do this, do that. Um, no, I keep my mind active by learning something new every single day. Every day when I go to bed, I ask myself, what did I learn today that I didn't know yesterday? And that's how I keep my mind active. Um, it's, it's not doing mindless tasks. It's about learning something different. Now, you've taken... right. When we talk about failure, and we'll move off of, of that F word here in a second. Yeah. There's financial failure too, right? There right. was a, you know, you even mentioned when you first kind of stepped out literally on the edge and did something that was unique compared to where your quote unquote professional career was going to take. He's, yeah, I think you said, I think the line you used, I'd rather be dead than broke. Well, at some point in your life as a lawyer, 
you weren't broke, but you kept doing it. How did you tackle complacency or comfort? Um, well, first of all, I don't ever get complacent. It's not in my vocabulary. I can't. Um, I have to keep moving. And let me just say, as you say, so I'm, I'm smiling going, sometimes it's not you that's going to fall. Somebody's going to push you over the edge. I mean, um, in, I'll, I'll never forget 2008, I owned a real estate title insurance agency as part of my law firm. And I walked in one morning and found out that I had about $40,000 in payroll and I had $8 in the bank because the real estate market had crashed. And I, I, I wound up calling my stockbroker and found out that everything was down. And I remember sitting there thinking, it's time to start over. So I met with my staff. I moved some people into the law firm. I had to let some people go. Um, but we refocused the, the law firm. I, I ended up moving some people into family law because I hate to say it, but the reality of it was that the market crashed and people were getting divorced because they were miserable. So I, I just found something that was keeping it alive. Um, so even in that quote security that you think you have as a lawyer, um, no, there's outside forces you cannot control. And the 2008 crash was one of them, especially when your law firm was highly dependent. I was the criminal lawyer, but I had five people working just on real estate, you know, and who thought real estate was going to go belly up? You know, that's like me walking steel and the big guy comes walking over and goes, hey, I'm going to push you. You don't see it coming and you just have to ride the tide. So, um, as I said, I'm scared of poverty. I always find solutions, find a way around it. It's just how I work. How much of this searching and this trial and error and experimentation um, is is motivated by money? Does it have to be motivated by money or is it, can it just be for the pure pleasure of it? Oh, my God. No, no. It's actually the inverse. Um, wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's. I'm just looking right now, hanging on my wall, there's 11 guitars. I've never made a penny playing a guitar because I am not very good at it. That doesn't count the ones in cases in the rest of the room. I just love my guitars. And I hack at it. I play at it. I always tell people if uh, I get a phone call someday and um, I got a jam with one of the greats, give me six months, I'll figure it out. But the truth is, no, it's, it's not, that's not driven by money. That's, um, I just smile every time I touch one of my guitars. Uh, that's, that's a, a pure hobby. I am also an artist. I, I paint acrylic on canvas and, um, we joke in the house that it is about money, um, uh, because I've never sold a painting. I hang them all over the house. And every time someone asks me if they can have one of them, I just look at them and say, $10,000. And they look and, at me and go, I don't And how many have you sold? Zero. <laughs> but, and, and somebody asked me, they said, what about 500? I said, no, because the minute I sell one, it's going to be a business and I have to support myself with it. Um, no, and it's a high, I, but that's what keeps my energy level up. Um, 
during the summer, I don't paint at all, but come sometime late September, I'll set up my studio and paint through the winter because uh, nobody wants to go outside in Hershey in the winter. We, we stay in the basement and hide in the warmth. So I'll paint all winter, but that's what makes me happy. It seems it's it seems so simple when you say it. And and that's probably what what brought you to write, right? I mean, you didn't even put author in there. Uh yeah. and speak. Tell me about when you decided or how you decided or even if it was a a decision point of bringing this out to other people and bringing it to to the world and encouraging sure. people. Well, let let me say this. I wrote several books. Um I wrote a book on leadership. I wrote a book on communication. I wrote a book just for the entertainment industry. One of my uh, favorite books was my book, Don't Be a Hamster, um, which was 30 Ways to Spark the Imagination of Busy People. And it's a great cartoon book with a little message and then a cartoon to go with it, you know, and... That book is a labor of love because that is how I live my life, meaning keeping yourself interested, keeping yourself involved. I never thought twice about being what we now call multidisciplinary or cross-disciplinary. Um, about a year ago, I met with a business coach who just laughed at me and said, do you understand that you're weird? And I said, what does that mean? And he said, why do you write books to put yourself in a box? He said, you're not a leadership speaker. You're not a communication speaker. He said, your hamster books, the one that actually is more you than any of them. And it's a silly book. And I said, okay, talk to me. And he, he said to me, and it was a funny story, but he said, I want you to read this verse by Walt Whitman. And it was a quote from Walt Whitman and said, do I contradict myself? Well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And he said, I want you to think about that. And I did. And then I started making a list of everything I do and writing down all the stuff that I do. And uh, about three months ago, I sent 72,000 words to my editor and said, I think I wrote a book. <laughs> um, I just got the book back. Um, he got rid of a lot of the words that were useless. Um, but now we're in editing. So the generalist advantage, how to harness the raw power of multidisciplinary thinking will be coming out later this year. And uh, really what that is, is an analysis of what a generalist is, why generalists think better, why they, why they predict better. And um, it's funny because I know some people that have dabbled into the same arena and I look at it going, no, I am 63. I'm an old curmudgeon. I have a lot of lanes crossing over and a lot to offer the world. And uh, as I wrote the book, that's when I started meeting some CEOs and some C-suite people that wanted to talk to me about cross-disciplinary thinking. And it opened up a whole new lane for me as a corporate consultant. So um, 
So, did so I, talk about that just for a smidge. You're yeah. talking to highly successful people with the with with the C acronym in them, and I have to assume you were interviewing them uh, as part of your book. As in, how did you do it personally, or or what are the benefits or or downfalls of it? And you found what did you find? Well, okay, let me let me back up. That I, I don't want to correct you, but I will. Um, I did not interview them for the book because a lot of the people that I deal with in the C-suite don't get it. And what I mean by that is I was with one on Friday who said to me, oh, I tried a multidisciplinary approach, but it didn't work. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, because you put somebody in charge. That person came from silo A. You put him in charge of people from silo A through D. The four people are in a room. And at the end of the day, the guy in silo A gave more priority to his silo and the other three rejected the ideas and the team went nowhere. And he looked at me and said, um, yeah, that's what happened. I said, yeah, I know it happens all the time. I've lived it. That's why you need me. And he said, what do you mean? I go, I don't have skin in any of your silos and I can bring them all together. And I said, I could teach you to do it. But I'm afraid at the end of the day, you are going to be weak and give in to your favorite person and it's not going to work. And let me explain why I said all that to him. Back when I was a prosecutor, I was the head of the Medicaid fraud unit for the Pennsylvania Attorney General. And for those that don't know it, multidisciplinary teams existed in medicine for years. You bring in doctors from all different areas to diagnose a problem and to figure out how to treat it. And they all get to do input. They all come up with ideas and the team is supposed to come out with some solution. Well, when I was in Medicaid fraud, we had a multidisciplinary team that looked at doctor fraud and healthcare issues. The problem was whoever was in charge of the team always gave more emphasis to their lane than the others. And that's where I come in as a generalist and I argue to people. I talk to these CEOs and I'm telling them, you got to have someone that doesn't have skin in the game in those lanes. So that way they can keep them all balanced. So with that correction, when I talk to these CEOs, they also know that innovation, invention, moving forward is going to come from a multidisciplinary perspective. And by the way, I'll share one of my favorite um, examples. I, I love, I, just, I don't know why, I just love his name. Otto Rowetter. Otto Rowetter. Isn't it a great yeah, name? Yeah, it's a good name. Yeah, Otto Rowetter. Now, you'll never forget him when I'm done telling you this. Nope. Think of him every day. Otto Rowetter was born in the 1800s, and Otto became an apprentice jeweler. Otto worked as an apprentice jeweler. He eventually became a jeweler, opened three jewelry stores in St. Louis, Missouri, and then decided that wasn't enough. He wanted to go to school to become an optometrist. So he went to the Chicago School of Optometry. Didn't like that either and decided he wanted to go into the baking industry. Got into the baking industry and here he is with experience in the jewelry and the mechanics. He's got the... Um, all the equipment that made glasses. He learned how to do all of that. Comes into the baking industry and everybody said to him, look, you're crazy. Bread hasn't changed in a hundred years and since the Bible, you know? And Otto Rowetter said, no, people are going to want sliced bread. 
and he created the first bread slicing machine. And now, how many times a day do you pick up a sliced piece of sliced bread because of Otto Rowetter? Because he changed an industry after thousands and thousands of years. He altered how it's done. And by the way, at first, nobody cared about the machine. But then his factory burned down. He didn't give up. He rebuilt the factory, started pumping out more bread slicing machines. Nobody cared. And in 1926... Oh, they invented the home toaster and people needed standardized slicing and Stroman and everybody else went out and got a hold of Otto's machine. So I use him as a great example because he didn't belong in that industry. He was different. He was separate. And he brought in something that nobody else had seen because they had done it for so long that he went, no, I see it differently. And now we're here. We are almost a hundred years later. And how many times have we touched a piece of sliced bread in the last week? Yeah. Now, now if you see a loaf in the bakery and it's not sliced, you're like, eh. Yeah, exactly. So my point is the multidisciplinary approach changes the world. That, and that's a minor stupid example. but it's No, it's not a minor stupid example. It's, it's a, a really, good, it's a really good example. And I think, and I know we touched on it in the beginning, but I'm going to come back to it. Mm-hmm. We're not, well, we. I don't think most people are raised this way. I think the most people are the safe route, call it the uh, first gen, second gen immigration, you know, immigrant route, which is work hard, move from high school where you're a generalist into college where you're more of a specialist than even right to get the real, you know, win in life. Do what you do. Go get a JD, go get an MBA, go get an MD or somewhere in there, you don't have to go do a lot of stuff to be, to be successful or start your own business. That's singular. That's not start your own businesses. And the point you're making over and over is there's another way, because if you just think of a single track, start your own business, get your fancy degree, that you're actually potentially missing out on not only happiness, but you're missing out on multi multidisciplinary thinking that could actually come together some point down the road that you can't see to something really cool and beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. Look, let's face something here. The world is changing every day. Um, You know, we've come a long way since uh, they tried to close the patent office because not everything had been invented. We all remember that as young kids. Oh, they were going to close the patent office because everything's been invented. No, the world is changing fast. It is changing rapidly. And most of the change that's occurring, whether even if we just look at the big ones, let's look at um, Amazon, Apple, Elon Musk, all of their founders, and well, Elon Musk, X, whatever, they're all multidisciplinary. They've all focused. It wasn't just, I'm a computer geek. No, I have business savvy. Um, it's not that I'm just a programmer or a coder. No, I understand books. I understand this. Everything was about people with multiple interests, and that's where they drive. So to me, I'm sorry, but gone are the days where they used to look at people and say, oh, you have a liberal arts degree? Yeah, a liberal arts degree was invented for a reason. When it was invented, it was because it was believed that that diverse education is what made you a better human. Somewhere along the line, 
we all started focusing and being driven into lanes. And we were all told, stay in your lane, keep your head down. I was on a call the other day and it was a group of business people. And the guy that was in charge said to everybody, um, tell us what your specific lane is. And when it got to me, I said, I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, like it doesn't, and he started arguing with me because people still have that mindset. But as the world is changing, um, as things are being invented, look, it is becoming more collaborative, whether it's in digitally or um, whatever, but you need to be open to seeing what's going to happen. And that is where I believe the generalist comes in because they are more agile. They're more versatile. Um, you can drop somebody like, and I, I, I say it my whole career, you can drop me in something and I will tell you how to make it work. When COVID happened, I was consulting with the government and I told them something big was coming. We started trying to figure out how to handle it. And then all of a sudden, everything got shut down and there was about four of us and it wasn't unusual for me to wake up and have to run a different department that day because people weren't there because of COVID. Um, but I knew that because of my knowledge, I could jump between lanes and not care. And even if I didn't know what I was doing, because I am a lifelong learner and I love learning new things, drop me in a department I know nothing about and I know how to ask questions to find out how to help them do it better. And that's really what becomes magical. It is. And um, even when you're going back to the hobby piece, um, yeah. I think there's probably a certain amount of magic at going trying a bunch of stuff. I mean, yeah. uh, you said guitars. I'll just tell you a little personal story. I played guitar a ton in college and then I put it away and I still stare at it and I'm like, yeah, I should, I should pick up guitar and I don't. And you know why I don't? It's because the way I played in college was a lot better than I could do today because I've kind of given it up. And I think probably what's holding me back is the work it's going to take and the frustration I'm going to go through to sit back down there and get back to where I was. And that's held me back for, gosh, I don't know how many years now, more years than I'd like to admit. So that's got to be listening to you for the last 45 minutes. It's got to be an unhealthy attitude. So if somebody else is in that position on even just a hobby or something that I like to do, or I thought I'd like to do, I've got some, I've got, I've got some, maybe it's not fear of failure, but certainly an, an annoyance of, uh, of having to go redo the work or get to where I want or get to a level of proficiency. I don't want to get to. Do you run into that where it's like, well, I don't want to start something unless I can be awesome at it. And uh, yeah, let me interrupt you right there and say yes. And I'm going to give you a piece of advice, please. You will never, ever be as good as you remember yourself being. Okay, period. Because right. truthfully, I played in a band when I was younger. Okay. I don't think I was as good as I thought I was. <laughs> Okay. Yep. Um, I just remember how much fun we had. So when I play guitar, no, uh, I don't have a goal. I have an app on my phone that gives me a couple lessons a day and it reminds me, Hey, it's time to pick up the guitar loser. I have no goal. I have no ambition. 
Um, all right. So I'm going to tell a funny story. Um, I, I got introduced. I was in Chicago. Um, I shouldn't say I was in Chicago at the time. I called a friend in Chicago and he put me on the phone with someone. And the guy was talking to me in a little bit of a British accent or something. And we're making fun of Tim and we're both picking on Tim. We're picking on Tim. And all of a sudden I hear Tim's voice get back on the phone. And he said, you idiot. I said, what's the matter? He goes, I put you on the phone with Alan Parsons and all you do is make fun of me. And I said, oh, was that Alan Parsons? He goes, yes. And I said, oh, I'd love to meet him. And Tim said, well, Alan's fat and ugly. He wears loud clothes. He's incredible at playing guitar and he sucks at magic. And I said, yes. And he said, you're fat and ugly. You wear loud clothes. You suck at guitar and you're awesome at magic. You two should meet. <laughs> and I remember laughing my butt off and I went, yeah, I, I do suck at guitar. And that day I had a business card made that I used for a while that said Joe Cursillo, world's worst guitarist. I had no aspirations to become a great guitarist. Um, and I laughed because I always think of that introduction going, no, I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm bad at. Pick up the guitar. Just listen to it. Pull the strings. Stop saying, oh, I want to be here. I want to be there. Do it for yourself. And that's where the beauty is. And that's, I'm telling you right now, give up on that. I'm not going to get there. Just enjoy it. If it's a hobby, don't have a goal. Just have fun. Thank you for that. Um, this has been uh, a really enlightening conversation. And I don't mean that as a throwaway word. Uh, I have a lot of guests on that are very goal oriented and point A to point B, which is great. And it's wonderful. Uh, but I was really excited to have you on uh, because of the word generalist and multidisciplinary, because I love that. And it's something that you have to explain to some people or a lot of people, you know, why do you, uh, you know, I'll just use your examples. You know, why do you mess around with heavy equipment in, in your backyard uh, and then also uh, run a re restaurant write books. Um, it's fascinating. And um, it seems to most people, it seems, um, I don't know, all over the place. And I wanted to hear how it's really not. And even if it is, so what? Well, and, and let, let me say, if, if, if you've listened to this and you're saying to yourself, I don't want to try something new. I don't want to do this. All right, stop that. I, I just was talking to a young lawyer. She's in her twenties and she came to me to look at me as a mentor. And I, I was talking to her about something and I forget what we mentioned. It had to do with, a, Oh, I know what it was. I mentioned Rocky horror picture show came up in the conversation. And she said, what's that? I tried to describe what it was about. And she looked at me and said, Oh, that doesn't make any sense. And I stopped and said, this is a learning moment. The way you raised the corner of your mouth and went, oh, that doesn't make any sense. That's your first step towards lack of growth. I said, stop doing that. Not everything has to have a reason. Not everything has to have a purpose. Does it make you smile? If it does, that's the purpose. So, just find something that makes you smile. Tell yourself you're going to learn it. 
I, I don't care if it's cross stitching. I mean, the newest the newest thing on my plate is I'm learning. I want to learn. I shouldn't say I'm learning. I have failed miserably, but I'm trying to work with a, a epoxy resin to make um, tables. And I, I I studied it. I met with someone that did it. And look, next time you talk to me, I could tell you that I ended up resining my hands together because I, I'll probably screw up some very expensive wood, but I don't care. It's it's something that came across my radar, and I said, I'm going to learn it today. Because to me, life ends the day you stop learning. The day you stop trying to acquire new skills or new ideas, it's done for me. I, I'll close with a comment that I sat with a financial planner, and he looked at me and said, what age do you want to retire? And I remember silence. And I remember my wife's voice saying, Bob, Joe doesn't understand the word retirement. And Bob looked at me and I looked at him and he goes, you didn't even respond. Your eyes didn't move. And I laughed and I said, yeah, I don't think I knew how to answer you. Because it's not my nature. I don't know how to stop because the day I do the day it's over. And I, there's happiness in continual learning. There's happiness in being a lifelong learner. It doesn't just stop because we're old. So, I love it. Joe, right. thanks so much for being on the show and, and sharing yeah, this. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Take care of yourself, man. All right. Thanks. You too. The Matt Ferret Show, related content, publications, and MF Media LLC is in no way associated, endorsed, or authorized by any governmental agency, including the Social Security Administration, the Department of Health and Human Services, or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The Matt Ferret Show is in no way associated with, authorized, approved, endorsed, nor in any way affiliated with any company, trademark names, or other marks mentioned or referenced in or on The Matt Ferret Show. Any such mention is for purpose of reference only. Any advice, generalized statistics, or opinions expressed are strictly those of the host and guests of The Matt Ferret Show. Although every effort has been made to ensure the contents of The Matt Ferret Show and related content are correct and complete, laws and regulations change quickly and often. The ideas and opinions expressed on The Matt Ferret Show aren't meant to replace the sage advice of healthcare, insurance, financial planning, accounting, or legal professionals. You are responsible for your financial decisions. It is your sole responsibility to independently evaluate the accuracy, correctness, or completeness of the content, services, and products of, and associated with, The Mad Ferret Show, MF Media LLC, and any related content or publications. The thoughts and opinions expressed on The Mad Ferret Show are those of the host and The Mad Ferret Show guests only, and are not the thoughts and opinions of any current or former employer of the host or guests of The Mad Ferret Show, nor is The Matt Ferret Show made by, on behalf of, or endorsed or approved by any current or former employer of the host or guests of The Matt Ferret